A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. I have a great guest with me today. I have Dr. John White. Um, John has an extensive career, six, six decades of working in the business world with, with success. Um, he's, he's been in different areas of business, run companies, um, been in academia, uh, which, which is a story unto itself, uh, worked in government settings, nonprofits. I mean, just a wide breadth of experience and has written um, this wonderful book called Why It Matters, uh, Reflections on Practical Leadership. John, thank you for being with us today. Hey, Chris, it's great. Appreciate you including me. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So your story is really a phenomenal story. I mean, we get a lot of great stories um, here. Our guests always bring good ones and you bring just such a breadth of experience. I, I wonder if I could just, I'll just start off nice and simple and say, let's, let's share your story with our audience. You know, as I always say, how do you get to where you are today? You know, tell, tell the story of, uh, your, you know, your path to success. Well, that's, a, that's quite an opportunity. I'm a, the son of teachers. My mom and dad were both public school teachers. Uh, they together had more than 70 years combined service in the public school systems in Arkansas. And they were children of the Depression. Uh, they were the first in their families to ever go to college. Uh, in fact, uh, if time permitted, I would tell you about how my mom got to go to college. But in fact, that story is shared in the book. So I'll just let people go to the book to read that story. Sure, it's a phenomenal sure. story. In fact, every time that I tell it, uh, there, there are people that have their tears uh, in their eyes because it's a, it's a tremendous story. But at any rate, so... You know, Robert Frost, uh, the, about the two paths and the one less thought, but, at, it, you know, he presented that as though you need to make a choice. And so here I was, and I was interested that when I graduated from University of Arkansas, off I went to business world. And my, I was going to become the CEO of, of Eastman Kodak. I started out with their chemicals division there in East Tennessee, Tennessee Eastman Company, and I knew I'd be the CEO probably within five years, you know, and uh, yeah. so then I, I got there and realized that, hmm, the culture was not one that seemed to fit me as well. And I had an opportunity to go to graduate school at Virginia Tech and had a, a unique opportunity simply because President Kennedy mobilized the National Guard and sent it to Berlin, Germany, and the Southwest Virginia unit was mobilized and the department head there lost two instructors and he asked my boss at Tennessee Eastman he said I need somebody to teach you got anybody you could recommend and I have no idea why my boss did it but he said I got a guy that works for me who'd be a great teacher you ought to give him a call and so I was often there I was I was teaching at Virginia Tech and realized that hey I really like this so then how 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 could I possibly go both ways to be in business and also to be in academe. And I've found a way to do that. And so I developed a consulting company while ultimately I wound up at Georgia Tech after getting my doctorate and all the spending time 
at, at Ohio State. I taught while I was in the doctoral program at Virginia Tech. I went back. In fact, I taught at, at Georgia Tech. And so then I created a consulting company on the side. It just over, I guess, 75% of our business were 40 of the top 100 companies in the world and what we were doing. And I used my clients, consulting clients then to support a research agenda at Georgia Tech. That then took off. And the next thing you know, I've got a a National Science Foundation uh, research center that I'm directing. And then I get invited to go and head up the engineering director at the National Science Foundation. So Georgia Tech put loaned me out to the federal government for three years to lead the engineering directorate there. And when I returned to to Georgia Tech, that uh, I returned as Dean of Engineering. But then I was invited and I served on six different corporate boards. Uh, I was the chair of the audit committee. There's something about me, Chris, that looks like an auditor, I guess. I don't know, but I wound up being chair of the audit committee for all of these, including the NCAA. Yeah. Now, NCAA, I know, is a four-letter word for a lot of people, but there were some good people in there trying to make a difference. And so then the next thing you know, I'm invited to come back uh, to my alma mater to be the chancellor. And I said, no, I I turned them down more than a dozen times. I didn't want to do it. But then the president of the system did something I think was really quite unethical. He got my wife on his side. And the next thing you know, I'm back. I come back home to my home state. And, you know, my wife was right when our final her her argument she made that closed the deal, she said, if you don't do it, I think someday you'd regret it. And she was right. And um, and then we made a difference. And that's, you know, if, if, if you were to ask, what do I want my epitaph to be? I think it would be like what uh, Paul wrote in his second letter to Timothy about, you know, fight the good fight, keep the faith, you know, just do those three things. And then I want to add and made a difference. So I want to keep the faith, finish my journey and um, just make a difference. And so we were able to make a difference in the, the 11 years I was chancellor of the committee that does the accreditation stuff for the university did an accreditation visit. And after 10 years, they, they came just at the time, year before I became chancellor, and then they came 10 years later, and they said, we'd never seen anything like the transformation that has occurred at the University of Arkansas. That's the best word that we can use to describe what happened here. It was transformed. So that that wound up being a situation there. I also was able to make some significant differences at Georgia Tech as dean uh, during my six years as dean. Uh, I was able to make a difference at the National Science Foundation in my three years there. So I learned that even though you could go into a situation which had a long history and people would think, oh, it's intransigent and there's no way you can make changes, one person can, can make changes if that person is dumb enough and if is stubborn enough. And I was dumb I didn't know it couldn't happen. I didn't know it was impossible. And I was stubborn. I believed that if I stayed the course and persisted, it would happen. In fact, I told people that my management style was kudzu management. Now, Chris, you won't know what kudzu is, but if you go in the South and you go across from Arkansas all the way over 
into Georgia, you're going to find this plant growing along the railroads called kudzu. Yeah. You can see it growing, but you turn your head and you look back, it's grown. And I said, in five years, you will see we've made a change. Now, you won't see the changes day to day or year to year, but we're going to persist and we're going to get it done. In five years, you'll see changes. And in 10 years, you won't believe the changes that will occur. And that's what was able to happen simply because I believed, you know, Alice and through the looking glass said, the only way to achieve the impossible is to believe it's possible. And I think that if you get a group together and you get them to believe, you can accomplish so much. Now, it took a while for this big, big battleship to begin to turn. But once it began to turn, people began to believe uh, it's possible, and then more it turned, it's probable, and then it's it happened. So that that was the transformation that occurred, and I think it was simply because I believed that it was possible. And that was it. That was the big change. So my career has been one in which I have kept a foot in business, a foot in academe, and another foot in government, and a fourth foot in nonprofit organizations. I have four feet. People don't realize that, but I've been able to do that. And I was able to, to actually say, Mr. Frost, you were wrong. You don't have to just choose the path less chosen. You can choose multiple paths. You can do it if you set your mind to it. You just have to maintain balance throughout. That was a key. Yeah, what a great story. I mean, you know, lots of opportunities, and clearly it was success that were driving these other opportunities to come up. I mean, you know, you probably could have easily stayed at, for instance, Georgia Tech and just, you know, lived a good life there. Oh, um, yeah. Yet there's there's something that, that kind of drove you forward. I, I am kind of curious. So what was it? Um, if I recall from some of the information I read, you know, when you started as the dean at Georgia Tech, they were they were ranked, um, you know, good, but but you took them up to yeah. you know a top five, maybe a top three ranking. I mean, yeah. you know, what what did you do to to drive that transformation? So I understand the belief and all that, but I mean, how do you well, make that happen? Well, that's a that's a great question. Persistence, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, when I came in as dean, well, I had been on the faculty for a number of years. And so uh, I, I came in and interestingly, I'd never been a department head. I'd been the director of a research center. And I look around at, at the department heads and uh, at least three of them were candidates to become dean. Mm -hmm. So here I was in a situation where I knew that there were several individuals around the table who thought they could do a better job than I could. Uh, and, and, and perhaps they could have, but they weren't selected and I was. And, um, so I had a retreat and I set out goals, uh, and with engineers, if you have goals that are measurable and quantitative, you know, you can get people to begin to pay attention. So I, I set some goals and they were big, hairy, audacious goals, as mm -hmm. Jim Collins says, and good to great. I mean, and, and the, all but two of the department heads laughed when I gave them the goals because they thought that they aren't possible. One who didn't laugh 
was a, a young fellow that I had recruited from Purdue, and I just hired him to be the head of uh, civil engineering. I think he didn't laugh because he thought, oh, I shouldn't laugh. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been here long enough to laugh. The other was my good friend who was heading up the department where I was a faculty member. But What we, were the goals? We, well, I, yeah, I want to hear you. Yeah. These, these were, well, in five years, we would double the number of degrees we offered to women. Well, we were already offering more degrees to women than any other engineering program in the country, but that's because we were the largest engineering program in the country, but percentage-wise, we weren't where we needed to be. Mm -hmm. Another goal was we would double the number of underrepresented uh, students that would be African-American, Hispanic, Latino students in five years. We would double the number of PhD degrees in five years. We would double the amount of funded research in five years that we would and just on and on like that. We would double the number of women faculty in five years. We would double the number of underrepresented faculty in five years. We would we would move, we would triple the number of members of the National Academy of Engineering in five years. Well, they laughed. Well, obviously they laughed because Georgia Tech was a co-op program, and on average it took students more than five years to complete their bachelor's degrees. Mm -hmm. Uh, and said, how, how would we double the number of doctoral degrees given in five years? Because generally a doctoral degree, it, it takes, you know, three years. We got it. So I said, we're going to do that. So one year I declared as the year of the woman engineer. Uh -huh. And every meeting I would have with the department heads, I'd go around the table and say, what have you done since we last met to increase the participation of women in your program? Well, no one wanted to say I haven't done anything. So the next thing you know, they're beginning to do things. Now, at the end of five years, Chris, we didn't double the number of women getting engineering degrees. We increased it 84%. We didn't double the number of African-Americans. It increased 74%. We didn't double the number of Hispanic Latinos. It increased 73%. We increased the number of women faculty by 80%. We increased the number of minority faculty by 50%. We more than doubled the amount of funded research. We more than doubled the number of doctoral degrees granted. And we didn't just triple the number of National Academy of Engineering members. We increased it fivefold. And another one of those that we would move from being ranked 11th by U.S. News and World Report being ranked in the top five. Mm -hmm. I get a call, well, U.S. News and World Report comes out, and Georgia Tech was ranked fifth. The provost called me and said, congratulations. I said, Mike, if we had done what we were supposed to do on GRE scores, we'd be in the top three. He said, can't you be satisfied with that? I said, not when it's within our reach. We can go past, we can go past Illinois and Berkeley and we can be in the top three. We can't get past Stanford and MIT, I know, but we can get past those. Then I left and came to Arkansas, but the data had gone in, and I got a call from Mike. He said, you did it. We were in the top three. And so went from being ranked 11th to being ranked third in graduate engineering there. Now, I also set same kind of hairy, audacious goals at Arkansas mm -hmm. when I came. I set out 25 different measures, and I would go through, and I called it our report card, and every year I'd meet with folks, and then we put it out. We published it. It was out there for people to see how we were doing, but I set up what our 2010 goals were going to be, 
And I said, where we need to be every year and you track it. So we were able now we didn't accomplish all those goals, but we accomplished far more than if we had set small goals. I, there, Louis Grizzard, a writer there for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, wrote lots of funny books and great books, but the one I loved the most, Shoot boy, shoot Low Boys, They're Riding Shetland Ponies. Too many times people were shooting low. Mm-hmm. I said we need to set our high sights much higher. What a, what a, what a great story. Um, we're already up on our first break, so we have to step away for a couple minutes. So stay tuned, everyone. We will continue this conversation with, um, with John as soon as we get back. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at the Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with Dr. John White. So, John, uh, you know, we were talking about the success and um, and how you generated success at Georgia Tech in, in Arkansas. Um, you know, you you talk about belief driving success. Also, you know, the other side of the coin, the process part of it, and setting some good solid goals. And these were these were really really foundational for you. And obviously, the success at Georgia Tech, I mean, it helps build a name that gets you into places like you know National Science Labs or into um, Arkansas. Arkansas is where we were leaving off in the story. Um, it was was the culture different at Arkansas? Were they more open minded to it? Were they more closed minded to what you were were bringing, given the experience you were bringing in? Well, the the difficulty, of course, is that even at, at Georgia Tech, the challenge was that the engineering faculty thought they were they were good enough mm-hmm. that they said we're the best engineering program in the South, and I said no, 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 wait a minute said, you can go over to our bookstore and you can buy T-shirts that says that we're the MIT of the South. I said, I'm not going to be satisfied until you go to MIT and you can find T-shirts that said we're the Georgia Tech of the North. And then when I came here to Arkansas, uh, I had a, a bigger challenge, frankly, 
that there were faculty who would not have recommended their children necessarily come here, that mm -hmm. they would recommend they go elsewhere. And um, I said, I, we need to be the kind of university that you would aspire to have your children attend that it had changed in the years that I was gone. I, I left uh, in 1961 and came back in 1957. In those 36 years, the, the reputation uh, of the university had, had changed dramatically. Instead of it being sort of the university in the state, it was more like a regional university. And so I, I was I was shocked. I took my wife and we went all around the state just to introduce her to the state. And and I just heard that the best and brightest kids were leaving the state in droves to go to college elsewhere. And uh, I knew I, I needed to change that. When I first came, when I focused was going to be on building the graduate research program, given my background at Georgia Tech, at the National Science Foundation, all of that. That's what I thought I was going to do, but I quickly realized that, no, oh, no, no, I've got to get and, and establish the foundation, build the base first before I can go that way. And um, so I, I set up uh, a benchmark set of universities, including the University of Arkansas at 54 national public universities. And I gathered data from U.S. News and World Report uh, about six-year graduation rates, uh, acceptance rates, all kinds of different measures. And I put it out there and I showed where Arkansas ranked with respect to all of those other institutions. And we were near the bottom. Uh, in fact, we were right next to the bottom on six-year graduation rate and in freshman retention rate. And, and yet the quality of the students coming based on grade point average, on board scores, on class rank, we were, we were just about the same as Purdue and Indiana, but the kids weren't graduating at all. And the best and brightest kids were not coming. So that's, that was what I set out to do. And I got a lot of support. And, and the big support I got at the beginning was from the Walton family, the Walmart Right. Uh, Sam Walton's uh, uh, children and, and uh, his widow. I mean, Mrs. Walton was a big help to me. I, I had lunch with her the first week I was back, and, and I shared with her about why I came home, that I didn't come home for the university. I came home for my home state, for Arkansas, because one of the things that my provost at Georgia Tech said when, when I said, and he was a dear friend, dear friend, uh, said, Mike, I've decided I, I, I'm, I'm going to go to Arkansas. He said, John, it's a big mistake. He said, it's a third-rate university in a third-rate state. You can't make a difference. They're going to break your heart. And I said, Mike, that's all I need to know. I've got to go. And I did. And to Mike's credit, two years later, he he's contacted me and said, John, I'm so proud of what you're doing. He then would get our reports and he would send them to the governor in Texas. He was a longhorn. I, you know, he had longhorns on his, on his wall in his office and he, yeah. he never passed up an opportunity to make Arkansas the butt of his jokes. And so then he, he'd get our stuff. He would send it to the governor in Texas. And he said, you got to do something, increase the funding at UT because Arkansas is coming. They're going to eat our lunch, you know? 
but it's just, you know, that I just came home to make a difference for my state. And um, so I went all over the state inviting kids to come and join me in a journey to excellence. And they came, they came. I was a Pied Piper. I didn't expect it to happen like it did. When I came here in 97, we had 41 Chancellor Scholars. Mm -hmm. The next year, we had 492. We had a 12-fold increase. That class of 1998 changed everything about the university. It suddenly the faculty began to believe that, hey, this is going to happen that kids began to come and they came from all over the country. Uh, And so we began to make progress year by year. And so I would show what that was doing. I set up a commission, a 2010 commission, where I invited top leaders from all over the state in business, government, education, to work with me to create increased state support the university we then launched a campaign private campaign and and we wound up raising over a billion dollars in that campaign uh the walton family made uh, the first really big gift a 50 million dollar gift for the business school the largest gift ever to a public business school then they gave a 300 million dollar matching gift which is the largest gift ever to a university like that and all of that, then people began to come, and, and other universities around called it the Arkansas miracle. Yeah, about what happened here. So l- let me ask a question because I'm really curious about this. Okay, so the issue that you were one of the issues you were solving for was certainly reputation, um, but you had you had the right kids coming to the school. You know, you had the right kids applying. But they weren't staying if, if, if the retention yeah. rate after freshman year. So yeah. what was it about the culture that was causing those kids to then want to go somewhere else? And, and what, where did you have to start with all of that? Well, the culture, the culture was a widespread culture more within the state. Mm-hmm. The kids that were coming uh, were coming. And the big issue with them often was finances. This whole issue about student debt and so forth. And so the big thing I was able to do was to increase the scholarship support that helped. But also we're in a state at Arkansas where the amount of peanut butter that was given out for higher education was the same as that in Iowa. The difference is in Iowa, they had three four-year public institutions. In Arkansas, we had 10. Mm-hmm. We just we went for quantity as opposed to quality. We were spreading our peanut butter over so many crackers, you could hardly taste the peanut butter. Sure. And so the big thing was when they would come, it would be easy for them to transfer back closer to home and live at home and go to school and reduce the cost. And so that was uh, that was a big factor. So we increased scholarship support significantly, and that helped very much. Uh, And was the private support that really helped us with that. So, you know, you didn't have necessarily an issue with faculty or, you know, anything like that. I mean, you, I mean, look, I, no organization's perfect when it comes to people, yeah. knows. but, but it doesn't sound like you had to, 
you had to make a lot of change to faculty or even faculty belief. It sounds like these people wanted this. Maybe they didn't know how to get there or maybe it was this finance thing. But were there any other like internal cultural things that had to kind of change to get them there? Change is tough and belief is important. And sometimes the belief goes away when people have been in a system for a very, very long time. Yes, indeed. In fact, there there was a, a big difference, and that is that when I got here, the finances, the financial support for the institution was was very slow. In fact, um, that was a big challenge. So I thought, what's going on? So we we did benchmarking again. Uh, went out and f- to see how many degree programs did universities have based on their enrollment. Well, the University of Arkansas had more degree programs per student enrolled than any of the others in the SEC, the ACC, the Big 12, the Big 10, the Pac-12 conference. Okay. So I said, we're wrong sized. We either need to increase our enrollment or decrease the number of degree offerings. Well, Chris, if in a public institution, one of the toughest things you could try to do is to eliminate majors. I mm-hmm. mean, golly. So, so we've got to grow. And so we set a, a growth goal and the faculty didn't see how we were going to be able to achieve that. And we did, I'll tell you how we achieved it. We increased, we increased what it took to be admitted to our university and we increased tuition. Well, I had some trustees said, you, you, you aren't going to grow by increasing the admission requirements and, and increasing tuition. That's going to take you down. That's, Walmart doesn't get more by increasing your prices. I said, wait, you don't understand. This is very different from Walmart. Mm-hmm. You don't go shopping for the cheapest doctor. You're willing to pay for quality. And some of the best indicators of is it quality is, is it really expensive to go there? And what are the admission requirements? So we raised those things, and boy, and enrollment just took off. Yeah, it's just the off. psychology is just incredible. I mean, I, I, I remember um, when I first got into the business that I'm in, you know, consulting. I mean, really, within the first few weeks, um, you know, I, I think I was I, I was driving, you know, because at my my last place of work, we had um, we had a fleet program with GM, so I was driving, I don't know, like a Blazer or something like that. And, and a friend of mine who had had a lot of success in consulting said, you know what, you need to go and buy a BMW. And I said, why? He said, because nobody wants the consultant that drives the blazer. They want, they want, the, they want the expensive consultant. You need You're to double, double your right, rates and all that. Yeah. And, and no kidding. I mean, when I, when I increased my rates and um, wore a better looking suit and all that kind of stuff, all of a sudden, you know, sales started just taking off. Pe- people want to work with success and there is this belief that's there. Um, You're not kidding. A friend of mine who's who's an attorney. I mean, the more he raised his rates, the more he was in demand, and he used to laugh. He's, he'd say, you know, I'm actually trying to work towards retirement. I'm trying to get people to stop coming, and I keep raising my rates yeah. so people won't hire me. But exactly. but what I'm hearing is is now they think I'm one of the top attorneys in the state. He said, I don't know that I'm any better than anybody else. You nailed it. In fact, the very same thing happened with Systicon, the consulting firm that I had that we, we would do it and do that. But, you know, I got to a point where I was ready to sell the company. So we sold it to Coopers and Librand. And you know what Coopers did? They increased our rates 
and and they made in one year back what they paid for our company. Yeah. So I should have increased the rates a lot more there yeah. than I did. And that's absolutely. And also, by the way, I drove a BMW yep. and I got a BMW. So, and so I came and I met with the, the folks here and, and, and I met with the chief financial officer. I said, look, if we want to be considered to be great, we got to look great. I said, the physical plant has got to be improved. I saw weeds. When I would walk across to go meeting with faculty, I'd take a plastic bag and I'd pick up litter and all, and I'd go in and I'd set it down on the table and I'd say, look, you wouldn't let this happen in your home. You spend more waking hours on this campus than you do at home. Let's treat this place like our home. Let's let's let send the message that we want to look great in order to be great. And so there were a lot of things that I was trying to do, Chris, and you, you nailed it about what it takes. If you want to be successful, you got to look successful. You got to act successful in order to be viewed as successful. And that was the sort of the cultural change mm-hmm. I was trying to bring here because for too many people, there was almost like an inferiority complex around. And yet we had great faculty and we had great students, but we weren't just perceived that way. And so I set out, I had a two-pronged strategy of differentiate and associate. Mm -hmm. To differentiate ourselves from every other university in the state and to associate ourselves with those schools we aspired to be counted among. So I went to all these rotary clubs and civic clubs and I would say, who do you want us to compete with in football? I mean, immediately they would come back with the top ones. Who do you want us to compete with in basketball? Immediately you heard the top programs. And I said, who do you want us to compete with in history, in English, in (laughs) mathematics? And there was silence. And so I said, look, we're going to be as respected in in our academic fields as we've been on our athletic fields. And that's what we're setting out to do. I mean, that's what we we just pushed. We differentiated and we associated. And the greatest challenge I had, in fact, I was asked this by a young reporter for the student newspaper, what are the biggest changes you're going to make? I'm not going to make many changes, but we're going to change a lot. And we're going to start with attitudes and expectations. Excellent. Excellent. Well, John, we're, we're, we're up on our, our second break already. So time flies. We've got uh, one more segment with you. So if everybody will stay tuned, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes with Dr. John White. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. Keep the conversation going. Follow your host on Instagram at Chris Elias Official and on Facebook and Twitter at The Chris Elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. See you there. It's time to transform your business with the help of the execution culture, co-written by your host, Chris Elias. 
Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with Dr. John White. So, John, uh, before this break, I mean, you know, certainly sharing the success of the culture and and really changing the thought of Arkansas. And I have to admit, I mean, you know, back when I was going to, to school, Arkansas would have never been on the horizon. Now I've got I've got friends that that graduated from Arkansas, um, doctors, and probably probably about the time when you came in, if I think about their ages, and um, you know, they talk about Arkansas like it's the greatest school in the country, and don't you dare say anything about anybody else. So clearly, some success there. Uh, you know, throughout your career, obviously, you know, you, you're exhibiting what you said in the beginning. All this, the importance of belief. I mean, believing in the future, believing in the sex success, and how you drive it. And you've learned a lot. Um, even back as a teacher, you know, and, and teaching, you know, the, you know, business and teaching, you know, the engineering stuff that you taught, you know, part of something you said to me, you know, prior to, to coming into this interview is that there were so many textbooks out there, but it was hard to find kind of one place where all great leadership was tied. And I think that that, that was the motivation of, of you then writing this book that, that that's out there now, um, the book, Why It Matters. And I wonder if you'd, you'd share a little bit about the book itself. I mean, what what was the deep motivation for you, and what's the story behind the book? Well, it's it's, it's all is stemmed out of a leadership class that that I developed uh, when I stepped down from being chancellor, returned to the faculty. Several people said you need to to develop a course on leadership, and I know quite how to do that. So I went to see Paul Torgerson, who was my my mentor at Virginia Tech. He was my department head became my dean, and then he became president at Virginia Tech. Uh, and, and I said, Paul, I've been encouraged to do this. He said, do it. And I said, but I don't know what book to use. And he said, well, start with Steve Samples, The Contrarian's Guide to Leadership. And so I said, well, Steve, I, I know Steve. Steve sent me his book. I, I, I hadn't read it. I, so when I read it, I found that he and, and Warren Bennis co-taught a leadership course at Southern Cal. So I contacted his office and, and Steve was on leave and I told the executive assistant why I was calling. She said, let me put you in, in touch with someone. And so she put me in touch with a, a young woman who was doing a lot of work in the background. I introduced myself and she said, oh, I know who you are. I'm from Fayetteville. I came to the University of Arkansas when you came in 1958 as chancellor. I, I got my degree in sociology and I came to Southern Cal and got my doctorate in soci- sociology with an emphasis on leadership. What can I do to help? So she sent the, the syllabus and everything. And, and so I then developed my, my version of the course and, and had and the nine offerings. I brought lots of, of leaders in to meet with the students and they didn't prepare presentations. What we would do is like you and I are doing, Chris. We, I would start out and I would just have a little conversation with them. After about 30 minutes, I would turn to the class and I'd say, do you have any questions for our guest? And it was driven by those questions. I mean, we caught lightning in a bottle in my in all my years and I had one. 
teaching awards and all this stuff, but all of the courses had been engineering courses with equations and quantitative stuff. And here I was in a class where there wasn't going to be an equation. How do I do that? And, and, and well, I'll just use an example. Greg Brown, the chairman CEO of Motorola. So he came to the first offering. He walks into the room. He says, now I know that Dr. White's syllabus says that I'm going to be gone by 7.15, but that plane's not leaving the airport until I'm on it, and I'm here as long as you've got questions. Finally, at about 8.15, I had to bring it to a close because we had some other stuff to do, and Greg ran over to me and said, I haven't had so much fun, I can't tell you when can I come back again this semester. And I said, Greg, we're already set up for the year, I mean, for the semester. And he said, can I come back next semester? I said, no, I only teach this course once a year. Greg came back every time. And, and it's, it's that kind of thing that happened with all of our guest leaders, that they would come in and they would open Kimona and they would share and they would answer questions and not, not a, a semester went by that I didn't have at least three of the leaders in tears, shedding with the kids the challenges of leadership, the sacrifices of leadership, but also the joys of leadership. Mm -hmm. And so then after they would leave, then I, we would talk, we, I had signed six different books to try to cover the range of things. And then I would weave my leadership journey into tied together what the books had said and what the guest leaders had said. And so then when I get to the end, when I know I'm retiring, it's gonna be my last offering of the course. And the class said, would you write a book? would you try to capture in a book what's happened in this class? And I said, I'll try. And so the pandemic came and gave me two years, basically, of hunkering down and going down memory lane and trying to capture all of the things that I had learned along the way and the mistakes that I had made. Uh, and and it's, it's, I enjoyed the writing the book I just hope that those who read it enjoyed even half as much as I enjoyed writing it uh, because I felt like I needed to put in the book leadership A to Z mm -hmm. from the beginning all the way through on the journey. And that's what I've attempted to do. So I've got a lot of subjects covered in this book. You won't find in any leadership book that I know of, and I've read more than a hundred leadership books. So that's the thing that I was trying to do. And, and then what's the audience? That's always the thing the publisher wants to know. Well, what's the audience for your book? Well, I, I'm sorry, I tell you this, but there are multiple audiences. One, of course, is for students, young people that are looking, because the students I came back with three things that they said about the course. It's the most demanding course I've taken. It's the best course I've taken, and it changed my life. But Chris, my last offering, one student said, and this was in stuff that they post anonymously out on the, the evaluation site the university has. Dr. White said it would be the most demanding course, and it was. He said it would be the best course, and it was. He said it would be the best course, but it wasn't. And or no, it would be changed my life, but it didn't. It saved my life. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, I've got to write the book. 
if there's one person out there that would have that reaction to the book, then that's the reason for doing it. Yeah, it's worth it, completely worth it. Yeah. And so in it, I've got just so many things, but I touch on uh, like the world is polarized right now. And so I have a, I talk about balance and I talk about, and I have a chapter on balance. I have a chapter on paradoxes, but in that I also discuss polarities about instead of polarizing and going to the ends, find a way to find common ground and to work toward that as the goal. And, you know, we, we have, we as a world and certainly as a country are trying to divide ourselves. And the message in the book is recognize it's a polarity and, and don't go quickly to the extreme, but try to look at the world through the, the eyes of the other person and see if you can't find middle ground in this. Uh, and that was a message that I tried to carry throughout the course. And, and, and certainly I hope that in the book that it helps, but I go all the way through to finally uh, moving on, getting fired and retiring at the end. And I start with, how do you begin? Uh, and it depends on what kind of beginning you have. I mean, Lyndon Johnson had a very different beginning as presidency than, than you would want where the, your predecessor was assassinated and, but often you come in and someone's been fired. So you come into it. Okay. Recognize you're going to have the same kind of challenges that Johnson did. There are going to be people there who are strong, strong supporters of the person who's gone. So how are you going to deal with them? Mm-hmm. So when you walk into a situation, try to do it with your eyes wide open. I, I needed my eyes wider open than they were when I started and I try to share in the book a number of the mistakes that I made in hopes that no one will make those same mistakes again. So I, I think mistakes are a great place to learn, right? I mean, you know, some people don't learn from their mistakes, but, yeah. but you know, hopefully we all do. Um, as yeah. you look back on your career, what were some of, you know, I'm just curious, what were some of the biggest mistakes that you made? What did you learn from it and how did you do it differently? So anywhere yeah. in your career. Well, let's just, I'll stop do the one here at the University of Arkansas that I came and in the interview process, uh, I was told that if, if I was selected, there was going to be a rich, big challenge with respect to the University of Arkansas Press because it was running a deficit. So once I was chosen, I came before my term started on July 1. I came early a month or so before I met with Chief Financial Officer to go through the budgets and all that, what are the challenges? And he said, University of Arkansas Press is losing $400,000 a year. Well, the president and several of the trustees had said, you're going to need to close the University of Arkansas Press. So at the end of that first year, when I was having budget discussions with all the different units in the university, I asked the head of the library, I said, if it were not the University of Arkansas Press, how many of its books would you be purchasing? He said, not any. And I realized we needed to increase the budget for the library. And so I thought, okay, I'll close the University of Arkansas Press and uh, I'll increase the budget for the library. So I called the president of the system, told him I'd made, he said, oh yes, it is time, it needs to be done. I said, trustees, yep, we're good. So I go over and I meet with the University of Arkansas Press people and tell them we're gonna close the press. Well, Chris, it hit the fan. 
I mean, every every newspaper in the state, Freedom of the Press, Chronicle of Higher Education came out condemning University of Arkansas, or closing University of Arkansas Press. President Jimmy Carter calls me, are you closing University of Arkansas Press? It's selling my books. I'm, and the head of the University of Arkansas Press, um, Miller Williams, was a poet laureate, and he was teaching President Carter how to write poetry. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Talk about the law of unintended consequences. <laughs> yeah, it really. jumped up and bit me right in the, you know, where it would bite you that would hurt the most. It did. And so what am I going to do? So I, after, I mean, the next thing I do, I get a call from the president saying, you've got to go reverse your decision. I said, but this is the first big decision I've made. If I reverse it, people are going to know the way to get this reversed is just cause it created. No, he says, no, trustees, you've got to have to, I, I resisted. Well, then Don Tyson of Tyson Foods, he came to my rescue, bless his heart. He's, he's gone now. He knows how much I appreciate what he did. He made a gift of a million dollars to the University of Arkansas Press. He, had, he gave me a way out, namely that I could say, okay, we're going to keep it open because private support has come forward. So then we get and we made some changes. We, we changed down who the head of the press was, made it report in the university in a different way. And it's doing a great job now. It's doing just fine. So that was one. I've got another big mistake I made. My chief financial officer came to me and he said, you know, we have this internship program over here in physical plant. And in the past, we've always been able to hire the people who complete the, uh, the traineeship program. And he said, but we, our budget, we just, we can't do it this time. And I said, how many do you have in the program? He said, seven people. I said, have there been any promises about employment when they complete the program? He said, no, no. I said, okay, get together with our legal people and with our university relations thing to make sure that you got this handled well. And, and, and let's go ahead. Well, nothing happened. But a month later, I got a phone call from the president of the system. He said, have you seen today's paper? I said, no, get it. I get it. Front page, university fires 25 people in physical plant. Some of those people were husband and wife teams. I said, I'll call you back. So I contacted the chief financial officer. I said, I got to talk to you. He came in. He said, I said, what happened? You told me there were seven. He said, well, we got into it. And we found out the budget problems were greater than we thought. And so we had to do this. And I said, why didn't you keep me informed? He says, I was giving you deniability that you didn't know anything about. I said, deniability? I said, look, all this sends a message is I don't know what's going on around here. I said, look, I told you that I wouldn't fire messengers unless they failed to deliver the message, the good news and the bad news. You're supposed to keep me informed. He said, I'll give you my letter of resignation. I said, no, you won't. I said, you were trying to protect me. I understand that. I will, I will take the heat on this, but don't ever let this happen again. He said, I promise. Well, he did a wonderful job for me and never happened again. But I went down and I met with the people and, and apologized and said it was my mistake. I said, because what happened, they went through, they did all of their decisions on seniority. So here were these husband and wife teams that were let go. I mean, that's made, 
So I said, we will find another way to solve this budget problem. But, you know, I, I, I should have, I should have questioned more people. I should have listened to more. The law of unintended consequences. I loved it when Judith McKenna, who's she's the, the head of international with Walmart. She's one of the guest leaders that's uh, quoted often in the book. She, when she met with the class, she said, pay attention to the TNTs, uh-huh. the tiny noticeable things. It's the little things that matter. Little things that you think at the time are not significant will wind up making a big difference. And that that's one of the things that I go through and I share a number of little things making a difference. And that how you, how you, I mean, I stop and pick up a kid when it's raining and giving him a ride to campus. Little did I know that he would wind up being the person who would come and be there when my wife had to have a pacemaker defibrillator done. And he, he said, this is the way I'm here. I'm supposed to be over in the VA hospital, but I saw your wife was on the list and what you did for me, I'm here. And then I'm, I'm at NSF and I'm getting ready to leave and go back to Georgia Tech as dean. They have a reception for me. And I'm sure some nice things were said along the way. But what I remember is everyone but three women had left the room. And these three women were back there and one was crying. And I went back and I said, what's wrong? And she said, oh, Dr. White, I'm going to miss you. I said, oh, look, the, I know the successor who's coming. Well, the reason she was crying, I was the only person who'd ever given her a birthday card. And she had them pinned on her cubicle, wow. three birthday cards. Little things made a difference. And they do as, as leaders. And I am sad to say that we are out of time. I'd, I'd love to spend more time on, on more stories. And who knows, maybe we'll find another time to, to continue this conversation. Well, um, a lot of those stories are in that book, Chris. So you'll enjoy reading it. So again, the book is uh, Why It Matters, Reflections on Practical Leadership um, by Dr. John White. And, and John, I assume it's available on Amazon and, and all yeah. the regular booksellers. Yeah. Yeah. October 25th is coming. October 25th. So it'll, it'll be, it'll be coming out soon. And um, I, I myself will be looking forward to it. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Chris. Well, you take care. Okay, everyone. You as well. Thank you. Okay, everyone. That's, um, that's our show for this week. Um, more great guests as usual are coming up. So stay tuned for those. And thanks for listening. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.